0: And thanks for listening.
2: What does it take to get people off their phones and into the outdoors? Climate One Conversations, with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton. I'm Devin Strolovich. In today's modern world, many people, especially children, live disconnected from nature and may not understand how a changing climate might impact them. Every child uh, should have a nature-based experience every single day. Phil Ginsberg is General Manager with the San Francisco Recreation and Parks Department, where he works to make the city's park system more equitable and inviting to an increasingly urbanized population.
0: When my kids were little in the city, we spent a lot of time in big open spaces in the city so they could just run and climb and no one would tell us not to.
2: Rebecca Johnson is co-director of Citizen Science at the California Academy of Sciences, where she helps design programs that connect people to nature wherever they are.
3: How do you raise children who love place and love the earth and in the next sentence tell them about climate change?
2: Nusheen Razani is director for the Center for Nature and Health at UCSF Benioff Children's Hospital in Oakland, where she prescribes time outdoors to her pediatric patients and their families as preventative medicine. Let's listen as Greg welcomes all three to the Commonwealth Club stage for a conversation about reconnecting with the natural world. Nushin Razani, let's begin with you. You talk in
1: your fabulous TEDx talk, and I think it was Nashville, about the loneliness of motherhood and how mm. you missed your mother, and then you looked to a solution. So tell us that story.
3: I am a pediatrician by training, and I was a pediatric infectious diseases specialist. And I think that I was actually really arrogant about having kids. I thought I knew everything. I also had four brothers that I kind of raised. And so I thought, you know, I I have this, I got this. And then I was living in the city and I had my kids and I think there's no level of expertise really that could prepare me for the overwhelming isolation of the experience. And, And we don't talk about it that much, but it was like I was inside in four walls and I had two and now three, little crying beings, and actually much love to our city. But everywhere we would go, I actually had to fight their natural instincts, like if they wanted to climb something or walk over something or even sometimes just be in a space as a child. I had to rein that in. And it was like I was an enforcer of some sort, just saying no all the time. And I was really unhappy. And I think after a while, I started noticing that when we were in natural spaces, and especially when we were in natural spaces and had free time, and I just like, I stopped. I didn't listen to everything that was telling them not to follow their natural instincts. Um, Things were just easier. And even though I I have a huge and juicy and wonderful family, I don't live near them, they live in another country. And and so even though I was away from my support system and in a city, when I was in natural places, I felt connected. And I think, you know, that was for me a bit of a savior Um, and I actually changed my entire profession and I devoted myself to helping people get back into nature um, through that experience.
1: So from that, you call it almost a, yeah, breakdown. Nature was your, um, prescription, your salvation. Yeah. Yes.
3: Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> Phil Ginsberg, let's talk when you were a child growing up in suburban Philadelphia, when you were upset, you went to the backyard. Tell us about that place you went when you were,
4: uh, um, emotions were overwhelming you as a child. Yeah. Nature was always the place where I went for, for calm. We had this, um, it wasn't really in our backyard. It was actually, uh, sort of a uh, forested sort of border of of our house and it was uh when i got in trouble for leaving uh, wet towels on the bed or uh, something else and i needed a little bit of uh a me time i went and to the same spot there was a little spot in the woods that i just kind of hung out in and mm-hmm. uh it made me calm and then i could kind of come back and function and pick up the towels and all was good mm-hmm. um and right near my house there was also this uh this this creek, Marion Creek, where I used to go. And this was at a time, you know, we probably all grew up in a time when being a child was less programmed and and Mm -hmm. less structured. And Marion Creek was known for its uh, crayfish and its turtles. And much to my parents chagrin, I often brought them home. Mm -hmm. And um, we had this uh, they indulged. And I had this big, I don't know, 20 gallon tank that they made me keep outside. Uh, where I, um, I I had about, you know, 10 of them 10 turtles and 10 crayfishes as pets and uh, it mm-hmm. stank as, <laughs> as
1: Every every child yeah. should have right. Yeah, yeah right. Rebecca Johnson you uh, also went had a special place a cabin that you went to in the woods Tell us about that. You know that place based early connection to nature
0: Yeah, um my family I grew up in <clears throat> Southern California and my family had a, a small cabin up in the San Bernardino mountains and um, my family weren't really campers. I grew up in the suburbs. My mom and dad didn't camp, but we would go to this cabin that my dad had inherited from his family, and he had great childhood memories of being there um, and being outside, and we didn't really have any, there was no schedule when we were there, right? We just got to be, and a lot of the times it was really just me and my brother outside while my parents were doing whatever else, right? Fixing the cabin mostly because it's quite old, um, and it was just a place that I could be outside in nature and, you know, turn over rocks and watch birds and learn about animals that I didn't see in the suburbs. I mean, I grew up in a, a great little suburban community where we had a lot of access to open space that I didn't really appreciate until I left the city. Um, so there was always nature around us. And my parents encouraged us, mostly because we were always encouraged to be outside, not sitting inside. Um, to to pay attention and to be curious and ask questions. Um, And so I got to spend a lot of time in this place that was really special to me and my family. And I've been fortunate enough to take my kids back there um, to just sit and be and watch the same birds or the same kinds of birds. Um, and now I know a little bit more, so I can help um, them kind of understand the place a little more.
1: So we, we're all parents who have teenagers. Grew up in a different era. There's a stereotype that young people are particularly glued to their devices these days. But is that really the case? One of our producers went to the esports arena in Oakland to try and find out. Several nights a week, dozens of gamers gather to play games like Fortnite, Call of Duty, and Super Smash Brothers. We <laughs> asked some of the gamers about their relationship with nature and how their screen time compares with their green time.
2: My name's Brendan Shea, and I'm from uh, Newton, Mass. Because I grew up in like a urban area that was just outside of Boston. Like if I were to go to the park, I would literally be the only one there. And you know, I wouldn't have anyone to play with or anything. Your friends are online, and you would talk to them online and whatnot. I do a lot of cycling. I guess that would be like my connection with nature. I'm Varun Rao, I'm from Piedmont Pines. I love going to um, national parks, uh, Yellowstone's great. My family lives on
1: like kind of a mountainside, so the location is, we kind of picked it just because of its,
3: it's just really beautiful there. I don't know, I'm the kind of person who stargazes sometimes. I love nature. <laughs> My name's Raymond Francisco, and I'm actually from Vallejo. I go to like yearly retreats, sometimes, haven't gone camping this year, but sometimes we usually go camping, you know, with friends and family, and then that's when, like, you know, there's no reception, so you're kind of taken away from technology. Because we forget, right? We're in the city. We forget, oh yeah, nature's here, nature's beautiful. It's there, and it's not always gonna be there if we don't do something about it.
1: My is Anagaraku Obioma, and I'm from Hayward. The majority of us, we do like spending our time in front of the screen. For me, it's kind of sad, because I used to be like, I'm, I'm like an outdoor person. Like, as a kid, I was always outdoors, doing whatever I can. I went to the beach one time. So it was pretty relaxing. Other than that, I've just been swamped with work. <laughs> so as a term like like deep, deep nature, I guess you
4: could say I'm somewhat off of it.
1: <laughs> Those are voices from a Friday night at the eSports Arena in Oakland, California. Uh, we are aware that all of the voices were male in that segment. There were, in fact, no women playing video games the evening that we visited there. Oy. So... <laughs> I'd like to um, get your reaction. There's a lot in there, Phil Ginsburg. No, yeah. fr- if I go to the park, there's no. My friends aren't there. There's a bit of loss. There's some stargazers. How's, what's your reaction to that?
4: Uh, Oi is my reaction <laughs> to that. Um, so let's let's start with the you know sort of some of the hard reality here, which is. Uh, The the generation of children that are growing up today uh, is the most sedentary generation of kids in in our history Um, uh, It's the first generation that whose life expectancy is probably less than their parents Mm -hmm. Uh, And that stuff about screen time is very true On average kids are spending somewhere between five and eight hours a day on their screen and less than an hour a day outside Not a great recipe Uh, More optimistically, particularly here in the Bay Area, we are blessed with incredible open space within the city limits of of San Francisco. 18% of our city is is green space. 18%. That's pretty good. And San Francisco is the first city in the United States of America where 100% of us live within a 10 minute walk of a park. So we have access and I think, uh, you know, under two or three different mayors who've cared a great deal about this. We've invested five to six hundred million dollars in our park system to try to make it more equitable, more welcoming. Um, And I think we're doing a a pretty good job of that. But we have a big culture shift to ensure that every child has the opportunity to enjoy nature every day. And that is what we should all be working on. Every child uh, should have a nature based experience every single day. Mm -hmm. Not just go
1: to a a park once one week in the summer sort of thing. Nusheen Rizani, you deal with an underserved population in Oakland that doesn't have the access and has some of the same generational things Phil talked about, sedentary screens, etc. So talk about reaching that underserved population at your work.
3: I I think that it's important to clarify that um, while there is absolutely a difference in who has access to nature and sadly nature is like many other commodities in our society. It's inequitably distributed. That does not reflect whether or not people want to be in nature. And um, Mm. we've we've spent a lot of time um, talking to and studying and being with um, the patients served at Children's Hospital, Oakland, who happen to the majority are on public insurance, which is a marker of being near um, federal poverty line and definitely people still want to be in nature. And so lack of access is not a marker for whether or not um, people want nature. Um, And so I think when you're talking about how to make people have that desire, which I think is what you're kind of getting to, I usually try to start with folks where they're at. And so in a family that has multiple stressors, whether if you're living in poverty, you may be working several jobs. And actually, this actually applies to all of us. There is so much to do in the modern day that it's really hard to come at a parent and add one more thing on. And so I really don't take the approach that, oh, you have to do X, Y, and Z in order to maximize your health. I really try to come from a place of you have the right to have this thing in your life that will help you cope with the rest of your life. And you have the right to rest. You have the right to spend quality time with each other. And let me see if I can help you find that. Um, And so that's the approach we take. I think that your point about um, equity is an important one. And so I hope that physicians can join in with people like Phil and Parks Districts to also advocate for the fact that, you know, if every child is going to have a nature experience, then every child needs to have a tree near them. And so we can't have all the trees and all the green in one part of town and not in another part of town, but we can all advocate for more equitable um, distribution of nature.
2: You're listening to a Climate One conversation about getting outside in the digital age. Coming up, Greg Dalton asks how engaging with nature can help us better understand the impacts of a changing climate on our own lives.
0: People, if they're paying attention to a specific place, and they go back to that place, and they start paying attention a little bit more and in a different way, they can start to recognize change um, and witness the changes that we're all seeing.
2: That's up next, when Climate One continues. We continue now with Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking about reconnecting with nature in the digital age with Phil Ginsberg, General Manager with the San Francisco Recreation and Parks Department, Nasheen Razani, Director of the Center for Nature and Health at UCSF Benioff Children's Hospital, and Rebecca Johnson, Co-Director of Citizen Science at the California Academy of Sciences. Here's your host, Greg Dalton. Rebecca Johnson you work for a program by naturalist you know
1: citizen science where you're trying getting out into nature and using screens as tools of engagement right it's not you know that you have. it's not black or white good or bad tell us about screens as tools of engagement and learning in nature.
0: So um, through my work at the California Academy of Sciences where I co-direct citizen science, um, we design programs and try to work with lots of partners all over the city and the state and the world to um, figure out ways to connect people to nature and at the same time um, help them by using this platform called iNaturalist, an app and a website, Um, to make biodiversity observations. And so those observations, like speaking as a scientist, those observations are really important for understanding and doing really good science and um, furthering conservation. But at the same time, um, this tool is a way to connect people to the natural world. And sometimes that sounds a little little counterintuitive. Um, But people are inherently curious. And having this app and tool that encourages them to be curious and take pictures of what they're seeing, whether or not they know what it is, and knowing that there's kind of a space where you can take a picture of a plant. And you might not know what it is, but if you take a good enough picture, the app and then people online, a community of people will help you learn what it is, is a way to foster curiosity and at the same time use that tool that can sometimes be really isolating but to connect you to a community of people. Um, And All of our events and the things that we run use this app as a tool but it also has a huge um, in-person community building There's a part of it that is in-person community building. So we bring people together in places that matter to them to help um, discover and document biodiversity together. And so we bring people together that may not have met, um, but share a love of usually of a place um, and so they can dis- discover and explore together and it's it might sometimes be through a screen But usually the screen is kind of helping the experience It's a little different than just being isolated by the phone in between them
1: And how are you uh, using that to document ch- climate change? Are you, are you seeing climate change?
0: Yeah, I mean, this, so um, the app is, you can use it to take pictures, but all of those data are shared. Um, so basically, when you take a picture of a, let's say, of a, um, of a plant, and it knows where you are, who you are, um, and when you took that picture, and it's shared online um, with, with iNaturalist, um, that's, kind, that's a data point, that's a species occurrence record. And so on iNaturalist now, there are about 16 million observations that have been shared from all over the world, and together those make up a picture of biodiversity. And so we can use those data to look at how, um, where species are found is changing. And so individual people can take a picture that they might be taking a picture because they want to know what that spider is that they see on the sidewalk. And they're not really interested in conservation or climate change, but um, that piece of information can help us understand how where that spider is found now compares to where it was found in the past and where it might be found in the future. So there are lots of different examples of how you can use these type of data to understand um, climate change. And sometimes, more importantly, is that people, if they're paying attention to a specific place and they go back to that place and they start paying attention a little bit more and in a different way, they can start to recognize change um, and witness the changes that that we're all seeing. And they have a record so they can remember and they can look back um, and really... Help, it helps everyone, I think, kind of bear witness to the changes that we're seeing.
1: machine Rizani, uh, there's a professor at the University of Utah called named David Strayer. Uh, you referred me to uh, his work. I watched his TEDx uh, talk. He talks about, he's done research about human brains, 20 minutes in science. So Tell us about his research and what he's found with people in nature with their phone and without their phone.
3: Sure. Well, I think... He, <laughs> In general, and this is both the work of David Strayer and many others, if you, if you take an urban person and you, you put them in the forest, within a few minutes, you'll see improvement in stress. And so you'll see improvements in cortisol, in heart rate, in blood pressure. Um, once you get to around 20 minutes, you'll see improvements in attention span. Um, after an hour, you'll see more physical activity. Um, and then 90 minutes, they've shown that depression goes down. And then when you spend even longer time in nature, and this is one of the studies that Dr. Strayer did, where he actually hooked people up to EEG machines while they were backpacking in the wilderness, um, and he, you know, he held—they he, had no technology at all, and he seemed, except the EEG machines. Yeah, except on their the EEG. That's yeah. so true. <laughs> but what he found is that there seems. To around day three, there's a little bit of a tipping point where your creativity is really maximized <laughs> and um, your cognitive ability goes up. Um, he has also done another study where he looked at um, the changes in brain waves in nature. And then what if you go into nature with your phone? And I'm really sorry to say, I mean, we were just discussing that there are different ways to interact with your phone, but he did show that some of the benefit went away with the phone. And I think as a pediatrician, one thing that I'm also, and you brought this up, concerned about is parents and parental distraction. Mm -hmm. And the fact that the emotional attachment that happens between a parent and a child when a parent actually looks a child in the eye. And mirrors their facial expression that that whole interaction is key to the emotional development of the child and so when both parties are fixated on a screen instead of each other (laughs) there is a loss of actually what is not optional what is actually essential to the development of a human being which is having your parent mirror your emotions and so I think except for i naturalists. <laughs> we, we, we need to be aware of our you know of the fact that we might be missing out on really enjoying nature together if we're doing it through a screen yeah yeah
1: phil ginsburg uh there are people uh, juveniles on probation that go to yosemite tell us about that program
4: um we run a really really great program called the teen outdoor experience it's a Partnership a multi-agency partnership, but it's uh, we, we manage a property near Hetch Hetchy called Camp Mather Maybe some of you have have yeah. been there uh, It is a place where there is no cell service and there is no Wi-Fi. Mm. Think about that <laughs> for just a second <laughs> And it is paradise um, and You know picking up on Nushin's, uh, You know apt uh, remark about the equitable distribution of opportunities like that. It has historically not been a place where we have seen that many people of color and that many people from underserved communities. It's it's beloved uh, among much of San Francisco. But but we've made a concerted effort to give kids who don't know about it or wouldn't normally have a chance to get up there to get up there. So the program uh, works with kids who touch our juvenile probation system. Uh, And it involves uh, The juvenile probation department the police department department of children youth and family and and my staff And we bring up every year about 70 kids um, for about five days and what's amazing is that this is a population that uh, Probably wouldn't may not flinch at a gunshot uh, That they hear in the city that are used to concrete and asphalt uh, Have seen all kinds of awful stuff that doesn't really scare them very much and you bring them up to the woods And they just become kids again. They're scared of the dark. They're scared of water. They're scared of animal sounds. Uh, They have trouble understanding why you can't have a bag of Cheetos in your tent in the woods. (laughs) And a couple had to learn the hard way. Um, And uh, to see uh, this group of kids up there, uh, you literally watch this population become kids again. And it's uh, and it speaks to everything anecdotally. I'm just relaying everything that, you know, new sheen has evidence <laughs> about about, you know, the impact on mental health, the impact on creativity, um, relationship building, all these things happen easier in nature without a phone.
1: If you're just joining us, we're talking about Connecting to Nature at Climate <clears throat> One with our guests, Phil Ginsberg, General Manager of the Recreation and Parks Department in San Francisco, Nusheen Razani, Director of the Center for Nature and Health at the Children's Hospital in Oakland, California, and Rebecca Johnson, Citizen Science Lead at the California Academy of Sciences. I'm Greg Dalton. Rosani, Razani, uh, you have a son who's 13 years old who um, has, has a YouTube programmer channel. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, I'm making an old guy <laughs> mistake. <trying> to... <laughs> uh, tell us about, tell us about that
3: so I raised my kids loving nature and I realized that that has consequences because everything that they're hearing about is that nature is in trouble right and so how do you raise children who love place and love the earth and in the next sentence tell them about climate change and I think what I realized around the time that my oldest turned 13 is that If that energy doesn't get channeled into something productive and uh, powerful, it will become anxious and sad and withdrawn and not active. And so um, he wanted to make a YouTube channel. It's called Movies with Mike One. Let me just uh, give a little shout out. (laughs) But but, um, it's for... Um, climate change and it's he does little challenges like he did. Am I supposed to talk about this three days without plastic? Sure. And I think I mean, I think what's just beautiful about it is
1: three days without touching plastic. Well, I mean, I
3: mean, he tried and we took a picture of our trash before and after and there was still like there was still plastic in our trash. But um, but I looked at
1: it. He's he brushes his tooth, his teeth, yeah, not with so a toothbrush because he's brushing his teeth with like a metal bar. Or no, it was a <laughs>
3: stick. OK, a, but <laughs> but it was so humbling. It was impossible to run a family. with I mean, it was really hard to not use plastic. Um, but I think the message here is like it doesn't really matter how you engage with climate change if you're a youth. But just that you do and that, you know, That you have a voice and a role, and a way better voice than all of us. And not only that, but like we're all behind you. Um, And if you choose technology to do that, great. Even though I told them not to be on technology, you know, um, it is the tool that you have. So um, I'm I'm proud of him, and I'm proud of all the youth, just for being alive in this day and age, and for any creative energy that you bring to climate change that's, you know, facing all of us.
1: And youth are really driving a lot of the politics in this country right now around climate. When the Sunrise Movement, children Mm -hmm. are in federal court suing the government uh, to do more. But Nushin, I want to ask you, a lot of people struggle with how much to tell children. I remember some eighth graders coming to me and they did a a research project and they were very prepared and they looked at me and I looked at them and, and they're looking at me as a authority figure And I didn't know how much to tell them because I think it's kind of dark But so, you know, how do you talk to a 10 year old versus a 15 year old versus someone younger? You got to how do you calibrate? What you tell them?
3: I um, I've been thinking about this topic a lot and um, I've actually been drawing from the research that's done on trauma Um, there's been research done after 9-11 and after really huge events on how to talk to kids about something very traumatic. Because I don't think we should take it lightly that we're telling children, not only that we foresee the entire change of ecosystem, um, but also that we don't really know what to do about it. I think that we have to do that in a developmentally appropriate way. What that research around trauma shows is that children do best when they think that they're part of something and when they have social support and when they know their elders are doing what they can and that they um, they have a story to tell themselves about what's happening. And so I think for children zero to five, you have to recognize that there's very little separation between the external world and the internal world and their relationship to a tree or an animal is one of intimate love. And so you really have to talk about the death of that animal in a way that recognizes that you're telling them something they love will be dying. As kids get older, I think you have to progressively give them more leadership in it. But just to wrap it up with um, you know drawing from the literature on trauma, I think the really important thing is to not say, the world is ending. And it's up to you to change it. I think, like, because you're five and you have no power, right? I think the thing to say is, you know, yes, what you've heard is true. And what you see is true. And my generation is going to do every single thing that we can. But then we actually have to do everything that we can. And what we don't get to will be up to you. um, And if you have any ideas, I'll try my best to follow you. And your lead, but to not like leave it up to them, or not say the world is ending, so you should recycle. Like, (laughs) I mean, it just it doesn't it doesn't make sense.
1: Rebecca Johnson, talking about uh, participation in something bigger than themselves. Tell us about the City Nature Challenge, which is a bio blitz Mm -hmm. that's going to connect people from all over.
0: Yeah, um, well, first of all, I completely agree with Nishin. And because I'm in this kind of environmental education role, as I mean, I'm a scientist and an educator. I hear this all the time is that people assume all the work I do must be with children because children are the only ones who can do citizen science and the only ones who can be connected to nature. And even when I talk with adults who are out there with me making observations, they'll say, it's so great that you work with kids because they're really the hope. I'm like, no, we're actually the hope. I mean, we're the adults here. We like, Who can call their supervisor? or their congressperson, like me, not my six-year-old or my seven-year-old. Um, so I really appreciate what you said. I feel like this all the time. It drives me. It's one of my biggest pet peeves about this work and the, the world that we're in. Um, but the City Nature Challenge is an amazing endeavor that um, the, Academy, the California Academy of Sciences and the Los Angeles County Natural History Museum lead. And it's a um, urban nature or a city and metro area biodiversity documentation contest which is a lot of words but really it's a contest to see which city and metro area can um, document as much nature the most nature over four Beat days. LA. Beat LA. Beat right? LA. <laughs> so it started out the first the first year was in um, 2016 it was just San Francisco versus LA. We um, worked together with our colleague Leela Higgins at LA County and um, President Obama had announced Citizen Science Day. So we thought, what should we do? And we thought, well, we, we could just see who which of city can make the most INAT observations. like that's that would be great. And um, together over, then we did it for a little bit longer. but Together, our two cities um, made 10,000 observations of plants and animals over like five or seven days. And we talked a lot on social media with like the BeatLA hashtag. And um, so the next year, a lot of other cities wanted to join. So the next year it was 16 cities across the US. Um, And then last year it was almost 70 cities around the world. It's, I mean, hats off really to Leela and Allison, who are the main organizers. They have, you know, multiple conference calls with multiple partners to get everyone on the same page because the, the most amazing thing about this is it's, you know, the Academy and the Natural History Museum working together with all these local partners who work in their cities and build partnerships that are meaningful in their place. And they say, here are the basic things you have to do, but really do what works for you. And by doing that, you know, we can make, have 17,000 people making nature observations in cities and make 400,000 observations over four days. And so for for us, this is a way to kind of get that like competition that the rest of our work doesn't really have a competitive um, aspect to it. But this is a way to um, get a lot of people engaged in the nature that they see all around them. And it's not just by going to a national park or somewhere really far away. It's, you know, on your street, across the street, it's, it's wherever you are.
4: That's a, that's a super important point, which is, uh, nature is not about the, the, you know, once a year trip to Yosemite or take glacier nature is, is in your city. It's in your backyard. It's where we are. And, and that's something that we really focus on here locally. Um, uh, not as uh, competitive as the bio blitz, but <laughs> I want to plug one other sort of cause for optimism, which is San Francisco is one of um, seven cities nationally participating in a a sort of national effort to connect kids with nature. Um, And so we have the San Francisco uh, Children in Nature Initiative, which involves uh, not just the city and county, but the school district, um, about 25 nonprofits, the Presidio, the academy is involved, all these organizations working together. And the toughest thing about change is getting different institutions to figure out how to work together to fulfill that mission statement of ensuring that every child has a nature based experience uh, every day. And one of the really interesting, more interesting initiatives that this collaborative is focusing on right now, getting to nature where you're at, is we're working with um, uh, child care providers. Mm-hmm. and you know there are some child care uh, providers that are very blessed to be near Golden Gate Park or near McLaren Park that have really easy access to nature and then there are some in neighborhoods like the Tenderloin or or the Excelsior or that are kind of landlocked and it might be a you know sort of a basement kind of unit where a couple of people are watching eight or nine kids and we've gone out and surveyed all of our sort of um, zero to five uh child care providers in san francisco and those that don't have easy nature access one by one we are working on bringing nature to those facilities so mm. with uh tree stumps and mm. leaves and branches so we're trying to bring nature there that's just one of the initiatives that this is doing but there is some cause for for optimism this is a real there's a real policy focus now mm. i mean again as nishin talked about the you know antidote to trauma antidote to mental health challenges the general idea of of being connected to nature rather than connected to the the internet and so we're starting to see both locally and nationally much more of a policy push towards kind of making this happen there was a-
2: You're listening to a conversation about disconnecting from the digital world and reconnecting with the natural world. This is Climate One. Coming up, we'll hear more about how technology can still be a useful means to that end.
0: It's really about the people and connecting to people and finding ways to build community around nature and nature connection for everyone, everyone who lives in the city, um, everyone who lives anywhere.
2: That's up next when Climate One continues. You're listening to Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking about getting outside in the digital age with Phil Ginsberg, General Manager with the San Francisco Recreation and Parks Department, Nasheen Razani, Director of the Center for Nature and Health at UCSF Benioff Children's Hospital, and Rebecca Johnson, Co-Director of Citizen Science at the California Academy of Sciences. Here's Greg.
1: Before we go to our audience questions, Phil Ginsburg, I want to talk about what's being done to make parks hip and cool these days. Millennials are a generation that's, that's, you know, golf is thinking about making the hole bigger so the game moves faster, right? (laughs) Uh, What are you doing with parks, whether it's BMX or ropes courses? What are you doing to make parks more...
4: Uh, well, nice lead in BMX and uh, ropes courses. Um, McLaren Park now has a great BMX uh, bike course. Uh, we're putting a ropes course in at McLaren. Um, you know, uh, skateboarding is uh, actually the I think it's the second most popular physical activity among kids uh, uh, under the age of 21. So, you, you know, you got to meet people where they're at. I think what's amazing about our park system is it is both cool and hip. It is also a place of reflection and really uh, our 225 parks around the city can accommodate uh, everyone and everyone's values. Um, and it does tie into the nature conversation because there's a lot of activities that happen in parks, whether in all honesty, whether it is soccer or team sports, or it is riding a bike or it's a museum mm-hmm. or it's a concert that actually help welcome people into nature, right? They're gateways. Um, and so you come to Golden Gate Park for outside lands. You stay for the Botanical Garden mm-hmm. or you stay for a walk along the oak, new oak woodlands trails. And so I think we have to be open to creative strategies and whether that, you know, might mean, uh, you know, geocaching or something. It could mean something that involves some technology mm-hmm. of getting people outside uh, in community in these shared experiences. And then the nature follows.
1: Tell us about the treasure hunt.
4: The treasure hunt. <laughs> uh, how many people here know about uh, Byron Priest and the treasure hunt? Byron Priest was a children's author who um, this goes back actually two decades, apparently buried um, cache, uh, a, a key in a cask in parks all across the country and then published a book of images, art uh, that accompanied verse that were the the clues to where these casks Uh, were buried and the key actually unlocks a safe deposit box with uh, Actually very uh, valuable jewels. So the story goes Um, Three only three of the 14 casks have been found Uh, um, Mr. Priest sadly, uh, I think died in a car accident. So he's not around to tell anybody where they are and so um, There is one rumored to be in San Francisco Mm -hmm. And it was this was on the Travel Channel about six months ago. And all of a sudden we had all these requests for people who wanted to dig for treasure <laughs> in, in our park system, which creates a kind of an interesting dilemma for a land manager. And um, uh, and we actually kind of leaned into it and said, sure, we want to do it responsibly. We don't want to, you know, hurt nature. We don't want to dig up irrigation systems and things like that. So you have to be accompanied by a treasure ranger or a treasure gardener and you can dig away. Um, and so it spawned this really kind of kooky, quirky way of exploring our parks. There was a rumor just last week that it had been found, but it apparently was a fraud uh, where somebody flew here from I think from France with a scheme and a fake cask. Um, <laughs> we my job is if you watch parks and rec it it is it is the sitcom um but it is uh it does lead to geocaching which is actually quite popular uh which are these you know uh gis sort of coded uh, little marks that people place all around parks and that is a way of true way of using technology collaboratively Mm -hmm. uh with your kids of exploring nature
1: we're going to go to our audience questions welcome to climate one
0: Hi, this question is for Mr. Ginsburg. So I found your work with the youth um, at Camp Mather very interesting. Did you see any long-term benefits after they spent uh, such a long period in nature?
4: Um, well, the benefits for us are we were able to engage kids in our system that, that actually have come back year after year. They come back the second year as a peer leader, and, and several kids that have been in that program now actually work for us. Um, you know we weren't really collecting data on these kids and and maybe at some point we should figure out a way to 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 do that um but we um just the mere fact that we have kids who uh, are still in our system and are now peer leaders and and camp counselors is 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 quite good um we have one other program that I think is worth mentioning, a program called because a program called Greenagers, where we work with uh, teenagers in the Bayview and in in Chinatown. And they are with us nine months a year, three Saturdays a month. And they they it's an environmental education and leadership development program. And those kids also become stewards. I mean, I think uh, Rebecca and nishin talked about how do we get kids to sort of how, how do we how do we get us all, but how do we get our next generation to To kind of sort of care about the earth and and really have a vested stake in making sure that we you know that we we have nature and we have have parks and rather than telling kids what they can't do we've i think we've done a a a pretty decent job of giving kids an opportunity to learn and grow and and actually you know work um in nature welcome to climate one
3: um hello so the earth has always been like an inter, always been a changing thing, you know, uh, for centuries it's always changing. It never stays the same. And I think that's something that's really interesting. But when things like climate come up, there's always these issues and I guess this is vague, but this is kind of for all three of you. What would be some things that we'd want to keep the same like as our usage of technology and also balancing it out with like nature and the, what you guys were talking about.
4: I could take a stab at a way that nature that technology is actually helping us in water conservation. We now use something called evapo sensors, which are, you know, this is basically a internet 2.0 technology that is a, actually able to measure the water content in soil so that we can irrigate much more precisely. Um that's an example of technology being used to help us, you know, conserve. Um uh and we've you know there are probably a few other examples of that but i i do think that we have to be open to uh you know um building design changes um irrigation techniques change land management you know techniques change um with technology and we have to be open to that as long as we understand what our values are right and our values are to try to conserve natural resources um to to try to respond to some of the impacts of of climate change and again, in this era of, you know, uh, unfortunately, a very sedentary, disconnected generation, giving uh, the next generation of kids uh, a reason to be outside, to form community. Um, and I, I guess kids and, and parents. Mm-hmm. I mean, what Nushin said about you have to be there to kind of look at your child. I mean, that really resonated with mm-hmm. me because I, I have a busy job and I spend way too much time on my phone, <laughs> even though I love nature and I'm out in it all the time. Um, I think we have to get back to using our park system to create community um, mm-hmm. and and I do think we should be open uh, to ways that technology invites us to do that
0: yeah I would, I would just add that I' um, you know even though the work that, that we do on my team is is we use an app and we use technology I mean it's all about community I mean I don't think I would be in this Job or doing this work or care about it nearly as much if it was just about the technology. I mean, it's really about the people and connecting to people and finding ways to build a community around nature and nature connection for everyone, everyone who lives in the city um, everyone who lives anywhere and um, Helping them use technology to learn more about the nature around them and to help kind of Collectively generate the data that we all need at the scales like global scales to help um, solve these problems and help understand how biodiversity is changing. We have global data about climate and a lot of most other variables, but biodiversity data is really, really hard to get at that scale. And the only way we can do that is if people everywhere make and share observations. And then the flip, like other benefit is that then they're more connected to nature and hopefully through the work that we do can be more connected to each other wherever they live.
1: Next question. Welcome.
0: Um, so I know that spending a lot of time on screens can be bad for growing growing brain, which my
2: dad tells me a lot, <laughs> um, but can Ms. Rosani elaborate on what you said about seeing positive aspects to screen time and how that connects to knowing how much time is spent on screens and how much, how much time to spend outside?
3: Yeah, so um, there was a large national study where they looked at screen time um, in kids and adolescents, and what they found is that there's a huge uptick in number of hours spent on screens at around middle school. And for kids age 14 to 17, sadly, you know, every hour that you're on a screen does increase your risk of anxiety or depression. Um, And so I think it's real. Um, It does seem that those uh, kids that spend more than seven hours a day, and that's a weekday, on screens tend to have like double the risk of anxiety or depression, which may be that kids who are depressed, sorry, need screens more than other kids but um i would say that going back to in the beginning when i was talking about you know basically how to live as a human you need eight to 12 hours of sleep if you're a teenager it can be up to 12. Um, you need to exercise i mean i can't even believe that i'm settling for an hour a day but i would settle for an hour a day and i tell people that you need to be out of doors in the sunshine for an hour a day. And if you think about the human animal, it's like the only animal that we allow to only be allowed outside for one hour a day, and we find that acceptable. But I think you, know, you need to be outside an hour a day. You need to um, f- have physical activity, and then you should be eating dinner with your family. There should be screen-free zones and screen-free times for families to interact with no screen. Um, and then, you know, in terms of what to do online, I think there is some data that some of the social networking stuff is more correlated with um, anxiety. Uh, and I, I don't want to speak to that fully. Um, but like instinctively, what I think is like when I see my kids creating something or generating content, or if they can get good enough to code or actually be in a position of power, when they're using the technology as opposed to just a consumer, I feel like that will be better for their mental health. Um, I hope that was some guidelines.
1: Let's go to our next question. Welcome.
3: Hi, I'm Scarlett. I'm a high school student as well. And I was wondering, because there's so much information these days out and I least I mean, me personally, I try and stay updated with all of the recent news with climate change and different scientific advancements um, in those fields. I was wondering maybe for you guys, what are the best ways to stay like up to date with all of the information and find the best ways that we can um, better our or reduce our waste or just be better citizens in that way? Rebecca Johnson. Yeah,
0: um, you know, I would say there's so much information out there and I'm sure I don't have to tell all of you that um, I have found actually some of the best science communicators around climate um, are on Twitter And so I think there's just this amazing community, especially of um, female scientists who are working in the climate change um, Jacqueline Gill um, They're just like a huge you start searching Um they're communicating science so beautifully and so powerfully and are really honest about what we need to do and connecting it to the kind of science that they do and so i think there are that's where i would look to kind of curate it i mean it's twitter so you have to curate it but i think that um that is where i go to find in like hope and inspiration and also the the real science that's happening right now
3: and i think the the most important thing is to not disengage we really anything you do that's engaged is good and remember you are nature so taking care of yourself is part of taking care of nature yeah, so last question so
2: based on the recent research of the effects of nature on the mental health do you believe that psychologists will begin to use nature more as a
3: treatment for mental health specifically depression in teenagers
1: dr Rosani.
3: Well, we're trying to do a randomized trial about that right now. (laughs) Um, I think, first of all, eco-psychologists have been doing that for a long time, and the medical field is just waking up to that. It's never going to take the place of an actual therapist, because therapy is its own art and its own discipline. But um, there are people right now who are trying to figure out how much nature, how often do you need it to help with anxiety and depression.
2: Greg Dalton has been talking about getting outside in the digital age with Nisheen Razani, Director of the Center for Nature and Health at UCSF Benioff Children's Hospital in Oakland, Rebecca Johnson, Co-Director of Citizen Science at the California Academy of Sciences, and Phil Ginsburg, General Manager with the San Francisco Recreation and Parks Department. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. If you like the program, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And join us next time for another conversation about energy, the economy, and the environment. Climate One is a special project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington directs our
1: audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner and Justin Norton. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich edit the show. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. I'm Greg Dalton. Climate One is presented in association with KQED Public Radio.